Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to Radio Islam, you can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You'll find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, um, TuneIn, SoundCloud, Google Play. Wherever you get yours at, you'll find us. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right, now, this conversation tonight is going to have a particular uh, resonance with our Chicago folks. Now, folks outside of Chicago may know the slogan that Chicago is a uh, is billed as a city of neighborhoods. And um, for the for the purposes of this conversation, uh, we're talking specifically about one of those historic neighborhoods, one of those historic communities that is undergoing uh, change and transition, much like historic neighborhoods throughout the country. But we're talking Chicago. So to help us in this conversation tonight, uh, we have with us Daniel K. Hertz. He is the author of The Battle of Lincoln Park, Urban Renewal and Gentrification in Chicago, a story of growth. I'm sorry, that's the end. That, that, that was my, <laughs> that was my add-on. That's your add-on. Feel free to add-on. No, but uh, welcome to Radio Islam. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. So you, you've picked a, uh, you've picked a really historic neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the, the, the uh, Lincoln Park, but also is known as a uh, is Old Town, right? Old Town, yeah, which is sort of part of Lincoln Park. Yeah. Now, now, what drew you to this particular uh, to this particular neighborhood um, as a you know to look at it? Yeah, I mean, it was less. To be honest, it was less Lincoln Park itself than I knew I wanted to write a, uh, a book about sort of the origins of gentrification in Chicago and where that you know process, which is now sort of happening in all sorts of different parts of the city and has been going on for a long time, mm-hmm. where it really began. Um, and Lincoln Park, and particularly the Old Town Triangle part of Lincoln Park, which is sort of the southeast most um, part of the neighborhood. And for those people who don't know, Lincoln Park is sort of um, one of the first, maybe the first uh, real neighborhood on the North Lakefront in Chicago, north of downtown, mm-hmm. um, and, that, and that's where, you know, I'm, I'm sort of arguing that's where gentrification really started um, mm. back in, you know, maybe even the 30s. Right. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, that's why Lincoln Park. Now, you mentioned uh, it just in the, in the description of the book, you talked about how uh, there was a mix of private activism and public policy that was integral to uh, to the growth of this uh, neighborhood. Could yeah. You- yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting thing that I found, and it was so, sort of unexpected. So, you know, basically the book follows um, these, I call them rehabbers. Um, they're sort of almost entirely white, middle-income to upper-middle-income people who start moving into the neighborhood really in the 30s. Um, uh, a lot of them seem to be from uh, suburban families. You know, they grew up in the sort of wealthy North Shore. Mm-hmm. They moved to uh, this area um, in the city to be closer to you know where the action is, closer to their jobs or whatever. Um, and um, they anyway, they they pretty quickly start forming these neighborhood associations because, you know, at the time, cities are really disadvantaged in a lot of different ways in terms of public services, in terms of where the government is sending dollars, you know they're they're 
service dollars, right? They're, this is the time of, you know, they're starting to build highways, they're giving people, um, you know, mortgage subsidies, but only if they move to the suburbs and all that sort of thing, right? So they're starting to say, hey, we want, you know, all of our, our sort of middle class white friends are moving to the suburbs, but we want to live in the city and we want to have those sort of suburban privileges in the city. And so they start organizing these neighborhood groups to sort of demand that. Um, and they and so so a lot of the changes actually come out of this sort of private organizing and private activity of these neighborhood groups. But then they also are successful eventually. Takes it takes really decades, but they uh, they successfully lobby to have Lincoln Park designated as an urban renewal zone. And so eventually, by the '60s, they're getting millions and millions of dollars of federal money and city money to basically seize entire streets, blocks, buildings that they think are substandard. Um, you know, these tend to be places where poor people live, um, mm-hmm. and Puerto Ricans in particular. Uh, in, in Lincoln Park in the 60s. Um, and they use the power of urban renewal, of public urban renewal, to basically clear out all these areas that, that they think of as undesirable. So uh, on its face, it is presented as we're going to go, we're going to clean up the, 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 the uh, dilapidated properties, the, the slum lords that, that have uh, properties that they're not taking care of. We're going to come in and we're going to fix it all up. Yeah. Now, now is this... Is this from the standpoint of, um, of of developers that are looking and saying that we want to do this, or is this actually from uh, from those uh, neighborhood associations? Yeah, so this is another really interesting dynamic. It, it It's really from these neighborhood associations that are made up mostly of these homeowners who come in, buy, a, you know, they can buy a building, right, for way, way, way less than they would pay for it in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. They then spend a bunch of money to rehab it. Um, and, you know, partly, right, they're motivated by um, they've put all this money into it. If the property values don't go up, they're out, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, right? So there's, you know, there's definitely that edge to it. Like, hey, we need these property values to go up. We need things to be cleaned up or else we, you know, we're out of a bunch of money. Right. Um, you know, certainly it takes – so, you know, these the first of these neighborhood or- organizations begin um, in maybe the um, – the 1940s, mm-hmm. um, and it's not really until the 1960s that developers start coming in and saying, "Hey, there really is money to be made here. We believe that this is like a, a long-term process, right. and we're going to start coming in and, and trying to build new stuff." And actually, the the neighborhood associations don't love that. Uh, oh, really? They, yeah, I mean, you know, they like the sort of historic buildings. They like the sort of low. They want it to be low density, low rise, right? And the and the developers are trying to build larger buildings, bigger apartment buildings, right? And so there's actually this, you know, the sort of initially this fight between these new middle class homeowners and the longer time renter, mostly residents, uh, lower income. But then by the 60s, there's also this fight between the homeowners and the bigger developers. Um, the homeowners are trying to keep them out. Oh, really? Now, um, I'm a South Sider. So um, I'm actually, at this point, still learning about the North Side, right? <laughs> you know, been here 45 years. Um, but could you tell us the demographics of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of Old Town, of the, of the Lincoln uh, Park neighborhood? 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at its inception and then mm-hmm. when urban uh, renewal came about. Yeah. So Lincoln Park and especially the areas along the lake were sort of after um, after the, the Great Chicago Fire of the 1871, it was built as a, you know, pretty solidly middle class, attra- you know, desirable neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, by the early 1900s, there's sort of newer, fresher nicer neighborhoods further out in the city and a little bit in the suburbs too Um, and so it sort of becomes more of a working class immigrant neighborhood Um, it's still overwhelmingly white it's 98 percent white through i believe 1950. Um, you know there's a small japanese population that comes actually from uh, the federal internment camps during world war ii um, Mm. when they were released from the internment camps some of them moved to chicago Um, there's a small Assyrian population from um, the sort of Anatolia area that flees persecution around World War One, but it's really produ- overwhelmingly white. Most German, uh, Bohemian, that sort of uh, mix. Then, starting in the 1950s and sort of accelerating in the late 50s and 60s, you get this influx of um, especially Puerto Ricans, some Mexicans also, but a lot of Puerto Ricans and Appalachian migrants, so white people, but from the sort of Appalachian region who are coming to, who are for the most part quite poor, and who are coming to Chicago for industrial jobs, sort of like everybody else. Interesting mix. Yeah. Um, And, you know, and then, you know, that has this sort of interesting dynamic with these rehabbers, right, these homeowners who, on the one hand, are really, they are self-consciously liberal. Right, they they believe in integration. They are in favor of um, all these civil rights bills that are coming up in the fifties and sixties. Right. On the other hand, um, you know that by their, you know, a they're still clearly not totally comfortable with um, integration happening in their own backyard. Right. Um, they're very interested in trying to control it. So there's actually this really interesting thing that happens with, at the time, it's called Waller High School. It's now Lincoln Park High School. Um, where Lincoln Park High School, which also sort of takes students from south of Lincoln Park in the area that's now Cabrini Green, or actually then was Cabrini Green, now is not yeah, as much. Um, yeah. And because Cabrini Green, um, by the 50s and 60s, is essentially all black, um, Waller High School is becoming significantly integrated. And they basically have, uh, these, these homeowner associations basically have this this line internally that is, um, A, we need to get people, we need to get white people not to freak out about integration because we don't want a situation like they have on the south side or parts of the west side where one black family moves into your block or one black kid goes to your kid's school Mm -hmm. and you sell the next day, right? right? Because they know that that's going to totally, and and they know that they can't, you know, the cat is out of the bag in terms of keeping the neighborhood all white and they, they don't even really want that per se, or at least they don't think they want that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also are really clear that they need the neighborhood and the school to remain majority white. And because they believe that as soon as it goes majority non-white, mm-hmm. there's no way they can keep the sort of white residents in the neighborhood. And so they're, you know, at one point they, they just flat out say in this sort of internal memo that I found in the archive, um, the whole program, their whole program depends on keeping Waller a biracial school with a white majority as a as a means of being able to control policy and access and right just the direction of the the community as, as they saw fit 
Right, and ex- right, and, and and sort of left, right, exactly. Left unsaid is mm-hmm. not just not only are whites going to be the majority, but we, you know, speaking as them and they are white, sure. we are going to be in charge of it. We're going to be in the driver's seat in terms of what's happening in this neighborhood. Right now, I know it took some time for um, for this kind of vision to come come to fruition, uh, as far as the the public policy side of it. Um, what was City Hall's relationship, or what, what was their impact um, in, in, in seeing this come about? So we're talking about that's that's the senior uh, at, the, at the outset, right? The senior mayor, uh, Daly. Senior Daly, that's yeah. right. So right, so Daly Senior comes in in '55. Mm-hmm. Um, so this has actually been going on for a little bit by the time he comes in, but right by by it's. Uh, he's the one who's in City Hall when the urban renewal really starts. You know, it's, that's interesting, too. He, he um, as far as I can tell, it, it seems like he didn't really care. <laughs> he <laughs> was really interested in Hyde Park, yeah. right, and the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was interested in the near west side, because um, that's where he put the University of Illinois at Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it really seems like those were his priorities. And Lincoln Park was kind of an afterthought. So Lincoln Park gets certified as an official, concert, they called it a conservation district, mm-hmm. in 1956. And everybody in Lincoln Park is like, sweet, we're going to get all this money. We're going to like do all this stuff. And by, you know, in a couple years, it'll all, be, it'll all be done. They don't see any money for five years. Um, they, wow. Daily doesn't. They're supposed to as soon as they pass this. As soon as they become certified, Daily is supposed to appoint this neighborhood council mm-hmm. um, that's supposed to direct the urban renewal program in Lincoln Park. These homeowners associations, um, as soon as they get certified, they send City Hall, they send Mayor Daly a list. They're like, here's the people we want. Daly ignores it. He doesn't appoint anybody. Uh, they, he doesn't even create a council for for a while. Um, so they, you know, they eventually get this money, right? They eventually get get to do at least a significant chunk of what they wanted, mm-hmm. um, but it takes a while, uh, and and I think that's because you know other parts of the city were a higher priority. Right. Now, was this similar to? Um, this makes me think about Market Park. I, I lived mm-hmm. in Market Park for a while, and there are a lot of. Um, that's one of the communities where the lot of the uh, historic brick bungalows. So I had one of yeah. those, and um, there was a program where. You were you got a tax uh, a tax break for you know updating your energy uh-huh. uh, efficiencies things like that um, was this was this or was urban renewal as it at its outset was it similar to, to that or maybe on a maybe a, a bigger scale um, yeah is there any similarity so uh, there were some programs to help people buy homes. But it really focused on, I mean, the, the most dramatic impacts were they, the, you know, the government being able to seize property, private property, and demolish it, and, oh, wow. re- and, then, and then sort of, um, you know, put out bids to developers to rebuild uh, for both market rate housing and sort of lower income housing. And so, you know, for, for people who know the neighborhood, uh, Larrabee Street, mm-hmm. um, for three quarters of a mile between North Avenue and Webster, both sides of the street completely demolished. Um, Oz Park, if people know Oz Park, that was a that was an urban renewal project that used to be full of you know three flats and six flats. Um, it was all torn down. North Avenue was widened. Um, so those were really the most dramatic things that urban renewal um, 
carried out in Lincoln Park. Was this all done under um, what is it? Uh, eminent domain. Yeah. Right. So okay. right. So so um, basically, you know, originally the sort of original version of urban renewal that was passed in the 40s said gave the government the right to um, seize land via eminent domain if it was uh, blighted. Right. It was the word that they used, right. um, which really just meant you know dilapidated housing, low income. Um, and then in the early 50s, they sort of passed an updated version, um, really for neighborhoods like Lincoln Park, that said, well, you could not just sort of seizing blighted neighborhoods or blighted buildings is a public interest, but also seizing buildings that might become blighted. Um, wow. And so, yeah, right. So, and so the idea was to sort of, you know, head off the deterioration that they, you know, said was coming. Uh, and that's the program that they used in Lincoln Park. Um, and you can really see, you know, the, the, so the, you know, they, they seized this area of, of North Avenue, right, and widened it and toward, sort of made that a bigger barrier to the south, really to, from uh, uh, Cabrini Green, separating Lincoln Park more from the Cabrini area. Mm-hmm. And then they did the same thing on Larrabee, where they tore down everything and replaced it with sort of more modern, more desirable housing, and if you you know look at that on a map, it forms this sort of, um, it forms this 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 V, this barrier that separates the southeast corner of Lincoln Park from the areas to the south and west, which were lower income, increasingly Puerto Rican and Black, um, and so it you know it it pretty clearly was sort of like creating this moat between the area that they thought was reviving mm-hmm. and areas that they were sort of at least at the time cutting loose. Those areas obviously have gentrified now too, but. So so these neighborhood associations, they wanted to uh, make sure that there was not a lot of density. Um, and to that point, so these, uh, the, the Puerto Rican population, the black population, the poor whites, uh, were these folks that were in rental housing or low income housing, um, was, was that their situation? And, and, and let me throw one more question in there. Yeah. Um, what was their response? Yeah, to, you know, to, to all of this. So they um, were in overwhelmingly rental housing. So Lincoln Park was, I believe, the figure is eighty-five percent renter, uh, nineteen fifty, um, as opposed to these, you know, these sort of rehabber organizations, which were about seventy percent homeowner. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a big split there. Um, they were, many, you know, many of them were in, or uh, much of the housing was had been sort of. Um, carved out of larger apartments. So if, you know, originally a sort of full floor apartment had been built in, you know, the 1890s or something, mm-hmm. um, or 1880s, you know, as the, as the neighborhood income went down, um, landlords would sort of cut those apartments up into smaller units that were cheaper. Um, so a lot of the units were that. And another big project of these rehabber groups was um, sort of deconverting those houses, those apartment units, to make them bigger and more attractive to middle class families. And in the process, right, mm-hmm. ma- lowering the density of the neighborhood, lowering the number of housing units there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, li- a lot of people lived in what were called rooming houses. So essentially, you rented a room and you shared often kitchen and bathroom facilities with other people in the building. Um, And oftentimes that was, you know, you would take a a landlord would take an apartment building, a regular apartment building, quote unquote regular, uh, and turn that into a rooming house, right? And just say, here are all the bedrooms. You can rent it by the bedroom, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't 
a lot of low-income housing in the sense of subsidized housing until the construction of Cabrini Green, which again is not in Lincoln Park, but it's just south of uh, the southwestern side of Lincoln Park. Mm. Um, and yeah, and the, in terms of the response, I mean, so that's another really interesting thing. So, you know, certainly there were people who, there was definitely pushback, um, or, you know, as soon as these groups started going, I mean, so, so they had something called the, the strict enforcement campaign is what they called it, where they would go around and find these buildings, you know, that had apartments that had been chopped up, right? And they would take them to court and they would say, you have to deconvert these buildings, which meant you need to evict half the units, right? right. And there was this, you know, there, I, I should say there was always this sort of veneer of we're doing this for public health reasons, we're doing this for safety reasons, right? And it really was true that a lot of this housing, by all accounts, was very low quality, may in fact have been dangerous. But, you know, you have situations where, so for example, the thing I always sort of come back to is there was a building, um, a three flat, had been turned into a six flat with sort of front and back units, right? Had been chopped up. Yeah. And, um, the front units didn't have a fire escape, which is not not yeah. legal. Um, and so these the groups sued the the, the owner, and they said um, these units don't have a fire escape. This is illegal. Uh, and the owner said, "Okay, I'll build a front fire escape. I'll put a fire escape on the front of my building." And then they said, "No, no, 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 no. That'll be ugly. It'll it'll lower our property values. What we need you to do is evict half your tenants, and then you won't need a front fire escape." Right. Uh, and so I think that those sorts of examples sort of show like what what the real priorities were. But anyway, so so when they start doing that, certainly people start showing up like at their offices, right, at the at these these uh, neighborhood groups' offices, and saying, "Stop! You know, we don't like that. We're 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 not into this." Um, but let, there, let me ask. Let me ask. Yeah, this. yeah. Were they because obviously there was an organized effort from the outset mm -hmm. with the, the development and the uh, direction of Lincoln Park. Uh, but with regard to the the renters, yeah, did they see that organ organization and themselves also counter with their own organizing efforts, uh, or was it just individuals coming in and saying, you know, look, I don't like what's going on? Yeah. So this is what I find interesting is that it 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 there was not a large organized resistance until the urban renewal campaign, um, until entire streets were getting seized. Um, and I think, you know, I, I think the, I think part of the issue, right, is that during, you know, what they called strict enforcement, where they were sort of picking building by building, you know, um, they were picking sort of on um, groups of people who, you know, it's really hard for if they're picking on one building, right, with six units, you know, it's hard for those six households, right, to really come together and form a big. Right. Resistance, right? But as soon as they say, hey, we're planning on tearing down, you know, 600 buildings, which is about the amount that they were planning to under their under their renewal program, mm -hmm. well, all of a sudden, six people in 600 buildings, and they have friends, right? And they have whoever. And all of a sudden, you have this these organized groups. And so that's when you start seeing um, uh, there's a, st a group that's found started after the urban renewal process called the Larrabee Street Improvement Association. They organize lots of people to start coming to these public meetings about renewals, letter writing campaigns. Um, there's a couple others like that. Um, and then, 
so, so I sort of think of this resistance in three waves. I'll go through really quickly. So the first sure. one is those those groups that are sort of being directly, you know, the, the, their homes are going to be taken and seized, right? Mm -hmm. Then there's sort of a wave of resistance actually within these rehabber groups. There's, you know, because remember, overwhelmingly these people think of themselves as liberals. They think of themselves as... They're you the know, good guys. They're the good guys, right? They're overwhelmingly, they think of themselves as the good guys. What they're doing is good. And so there's this, you know, kind of serious challenge from inside the organization saying, hey, we're screwing up. We are not living up to our ideals, and we need to do something about it. Right. Um, and they actually run these sort of opposition campaigns for, for president within these organizations. Um, they mm. do this two or three years in a row. They lose each time. Um, and then... Um, basically in 1968, you get both those people who have been working inside start becoming disillusioned and becoming more radical, but then they're joined by, really most importantly, the Young Lords organization, which is a Puerto Rican street gang that um, the, its leader, uh, Jose Chacha Jimenez, um, refounds it in 68 along explicitly along the lines of the Black Panther Party and says this is now a radical political organization and one of its top priorities is stopping urban renewal. Um, and so then you get this really serious, um, intense battle for the next two or three years between the Young Lords and their allies um, mm -hmm. and the sort of moderate and more conservative forces within the neighborhood groups. Right. What was media coverage like, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, during this time, I mean, of course, this predates the 24-hour news cycle that we have today. <laughs> but, um, but what was was this something that was localized and you know, in its um, as, as far as people knowing about it, was it was it a Chicago uh, issue? Yeah, you know, for so so early coverage um, is really it's really celebratory. Of everything that's happening, um, so there's of the renewal itself. of the renewal, yeah. Oh, well, okay. and of, of the of these you know people built buying and, and rehabbing right. buildings, right? And so there's a series of articles, really starting in the 30s. Um, it's like every couple of years there's a new article because uh, I, I I went through the the Chicago Tribune's archives in particular for this, mm -hmm. uh, and every couple of years there's this article that's like, oh man, look at uh, look at Lincoln Park. Did you know that there's these new people like you know rehabbing? It's so great. Then in the 60s with urban renewal, the actual sort of government program, then there's a little bit more of sort of like, hey, some people are concerned about you know, having their neighborhood torn down, um, but it's probably still good. Yeah. And then with the Young Lords and the sort of more militant activism at the end of the 60s, then you really start to see the media sort of turning on, um, turning on the rehabber groups and saying, Hey, maybe this is actually not so good, and and the sort of the final the final sort of battle in the book is the young lords actually submit a bid to take over part of the redevelopment process. Um, there's a there's a wow. a block that's been cleared, demolished, mm -hmm. um, and the government is putting out bids for who's going to redevelop it. And the young lords say, "We've hired an architect. We're going to do it, um, and they're going to build you know all low income." Um, the sort of progressive design that's meant to sort of be more communal than the sort of uh, other new stuff that's going up. And, um, you know, the, the rehabber groups fight them tooth and nail, right? Because to them, they're just completely the enemy at that point. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and multiple uh, newspapers, citywide newspapers, are saying, "Give the young lords a shot. Give, give, give them a, give them part of this process. You owe them at least that much for you know, sort of messing with their their lives and their community in this way." Um, they ultimately don't get the thing, yeah. but there is a big, you know, it's not just the, the newspapers, the, the the president of the Lincoln Park Conservation Association, which is the biggest of these rehabber groups, mm-hmm. actually resigns his post and votes in favor of the Young Lords. Um, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, so there, yeah. there is this, there is, there is this momentum by the late 60s, 1970, um, behind the idea that, that the opposition to urban renewal really does have the moral high ground. Mm-hmm. Um, what what are some of the, you know, before I ask that question, let me ask this. What is it that made Lincoln Park such an attractive uh, destination, a uh, community for, for people, for, for these poor uh, communities, um, you know, to want to come into? For the for the lower income people or for the, the sort of yeah, and I shouldn't say middle poor. class? Yeah, but well, I think I get it as far as the middle class, uh-huh. right? Um, but what was it that drew the lower income uh, residents sure. t- uh, into Lincoln Park? Sure. So, you know, partly it was it was cheap. It was cheap housing uh, because it was older, because it was run down. Um, it was, but it was still, you know, relatively, the, a lot of the buildings had been relatively well built, right? It was built for middle class households. So, you know, it was relatively uh, attractive building stock. I mean, you know, it was close to the lake. It had the the lakefront park. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also was really, it had good access to jobs. And it had good access both to sort of downtown service jobs. Um, so, you know, if you worked in restaurants or theaters or, you know, wherever, right, they, good access to that, right? You have the train going, you know, just a couple stops away from the loop. Um, but also, and this is something that, you know, I, I didn't quite realize, but, you know, Lincoln Park had a fair amount of industry in the early to mid 20th century. Um, really? You know, if you go along, even today, yeah, if you go along Sheridan Avenue um, or uh, along the river, there's a lot of sort of older industrial buildings that are now, you know, offices or lofts or whatever. Um, but there was a fit, there were a good number of industrial jobs there. Or you know, if you lived on the western side of the neighborhood, you could probably walk to Goose Island, which had a ton of industry on it, right? Um, and so I think both, you know, the kind of amenities that that were the same amenities that attracted the you know sort of more middle class people, um, in addition to access to these sort of more blue collar jobs. Now, what are some of the um, what are some of the current day comparisons that that you might make between that uh, urban renewal of the of the 60s uh, and and even where it, uh, Lincoln Park is today yeah um, do you see any communities uh, neighborhoods today because uh, I have a few that pop my mind <laughs> I'm sure you do yeah <laughs> yeah yeah uh, yeah I mean you know so so on the one hand right there's no more the uh, Richard Nixon put an end to federal urban renewal, right? And so we no longer have a situation where the city can just seize, you know, whole blocks and blocks and tear it down, right? Except with the exception of public housing, right? Which right. it already owns. Um, but in other ways, yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly, it's it's almost eerie how similar the process is in other ways. So, you know, you have both in Lincoln Park, 
And, you know, today in Pilsen or Humboldt Park or, you know, Logan Square, right, you have um, these sort of artists who are not themselves necessarily higher income, right? I mean, they may be relatively low income, but they come from middle class families. They have, you know, sort of social connections to that world and they, you know, went to four-year, you know, four-year colleges, private colleges or whatever, um, you know, you have them sort of fleeing neighborhoods that, um, you know, sort of older artistic areas that have now become gentrified and are too high rent for them. So, you know, the people who would have moved to Wicker Park in 1995 moved to Logan Square in 2005, and now they're moving to Pilsen, right, um, sort of looking for the next low, lower rent area close to um, the amenities and the transportation and all of that. Um, and then you have, you know, the sort of higher income, slightly older people maybe, um, who start moving in after them looking for, um, you know, deals on a on a home. Um, and then you have the developers who, you know, then at that point say, hey, there's money to be made here, right? And they start moving in. And then you have the same sort of uh, you have the same sort of fights over development where you have you know um, both sort of people who are concerned about gentrification um, plus some of these higher income homeowners who are themselves gentrifiers saying hey I moved here for the authenticity and the uh, the you know small scale charm and I don't want this big new building either right and and yeah. I think you you see that you saw that play out in Old Town and you're seeing it play out in Logan Square and Pilsen now. Mm. So what what do you think is going to be or what was the intention uh, with the book uh, for folks who may not be familiar with uh, with the neighborhood? And I think there's so much there's so much information that um, it takes somebody like you to go in (laughs) (laughs) and pour through all these 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 tombs, these archives uh, to paint a picture of how we got where we are today. Uh, What are what are some of the things that you really want people to walk away from? with this book yeah i mean so a big one is just that there there is a history to this right i think we often talk about gentrification in a very sort of present focused way you know Mm -hmm. um so part of it was i just wanted to say hey this has been going on for generations and generations um and it's worth looking at the ways that history has repeated itself um you know i i also wanted to tie it to you know one of the things i say in the book is um you, you know we often call Chicago a tale of two cities, right? And we talk about, oh, it's these two different worlds, the north places like Lincoln Park, right? And, you know, parts of other parts of the city. The, 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 the story of Lincoln Park becoming what Lincoln Park is today is really tied up in the story of disinvestment and segregation on the south side and west side as well, right? They knew that that stuff was happening. And in fact, they were so intent on creating Lincoln Park as it is now, um, partly because, partly in reaction to that, right? They were sort of scared of what was happening in the rest of the city, and they said, "We are going to create this, this little corner of the city where we don't have to worry about disinvestment, where we don't have to worry about bad public services, where you know the schools are going to be really, you know, well taken care of, and all this stuff." Um, and I think, you know, so 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 yeah. So that's the other thing is I want to connect the story of gentrification, which sometimes seems so separate from the other issues that face the city. I want to say that actually, these are two sides of the same coin, and they don't really make sense without each other. Hmm. Well, um, 
I truly appreciate it. I'm looking forward to, to reading this myself. Thank you. So <laughs> we appreciate you being here. Um, and folks can get the book. Can they go to Amazon? Or? You can go to Amazon. You can also go to beltpublishing.org. Okay. Uh, get it straight, straight from the, the publisher. It might be faster. But you can also go to Amazon. Yep. Okay. Great stuff. All right. We thank you very much, uh, Daniel, for being here. Uh, thank you so much for having me. All right. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment. This is Radio Slot on WCEV 1450 AM. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 Eight zero six zero one four one. That's area code eight seven two eight zero six zero one four one, or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave twenty thirty seven. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck for Dave 2037 so he can buy anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman. What are you getting Steve 2037? Steve 2037 will be just fine. Well, okay, but don't expect to borrow my anti-gravity boots. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks. Feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq Alameen, and we're broadcasting on WCEB 1450 AM, streaming at WCEB1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, we welcome you. Thank you for tuning in. You can keep up with us on social media by following and liking our pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You'll find us at Radio Islam USA. And also take a moment to subscribe to the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Tune in, uh, Google Play, and you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. All right, folks, um, for those of you who are in Chicago, as a matter of fact, it doesn't really matter where you are in the in the country. Um, most of our media have been following the Laquan McDonald case, uh, the murder of Laquan McDonald by former police officer Jason Van Dyke uh, happened in 2014. And we are just now coming to the point that we have received a verdict. Uh, and that verdict is guilty. Uh, Jason Van Dyke was found guilty of second degree murder, 16 counts of aggravated battery. Uh, oddly enough, he was not found guilty of official misconduct. Uh, but even still, 
this is a a sad but a hopeful day uh sad in the sense that i know many people wanted to see a a first degree uh wanted to see a first degree uh murder um conviction uh and that did not happen and there is a there is a slight difference between the two uh between the first degree and the second degree so first degree murder uh it is listed as any intentional murder that is willful and premeditated with malice or forethought and uh second degree is any intentional murder without premeditation but with malice or forethought so leave it to the lawyers the attorneys to uh to decipher that but from what i get from that as a layman uh, means that the whole premeditation part is key to the distinction between first degree and second degree, meaning that uh, Jason Van Dyke did not come on the scene with the intention of killing, um, uh, killing Laquan McDonald. Now, for those of you who do not know who Laquan McDonald uh, was, you know, this was an African-American teen, 17 years old. Uh, and as I mentioned, this happened in 2014 uh, and 2014. I can't, I can't even say oddly enough. I can't say that oddly enough, this was a year that saw the death, the high profile uh, coverage of the deaths of other African-American men at the hand, uh, hands of white police officers. Um, I can't say that's oddly enough because it's, it's pretty much a regular happening. If you talk to people from communities uh, around the country um, and primarily when you look at what's what's one of the things that that bonds these communities what's the common thread that runs through their uh through these communities it it rests in their in the interaction with law enforcement the interaction with the uh police departments uh and that is one where you find that the majority of police resources are allocated toward uh communities of color so the 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 blatant the, the plain way of, of saying it is that these are communities that are over policed and in a very an extremely even more plain way to put it uh you catch your fish where you cast your net right so and and that's another that's another conversation but 2014 also saw uh the death of eric garner uh, who was killed by new york city police and you know putting the chokehold Famously, um, the, the video, somebody had the presence of mind to, to video it, uh, even though with that video, uh, it still was not, it still didn't lead to what what's most important and what today's verdict represents, and that is accountability. So in that case of Eric Garner, uh, even though the video showed him gasping for air, saying 11 times emphatically i cannot breathe i can't breathe i can't breathe which you know as, as you know became the uh, uh just a rallying cry for activists for protesters for people of conscience um who were just just tired and and scarred and and, and emotionally battered and bruised and tired of seeing this kind of thing play out in front of them uh having us having just tired of seeing this happen not not across town, not to somebody they heard about, but to but to people they know, to their fathers and brothers and sons, their cousins, you know, just tired of seeing this thing continue to happen and then ending with the same outcome, despite all the outrage, despite all of the, the protests and the press conferences, despite all of that, 
when it comes time for prosecution, when it comes time for accountability, for justice, there is none. So there was no, there was no, uh, there were no charges filed against the police uh, detective that was, was responsible for putting Eric Garner in that chokehold. Uh, and and I'll, I'll mention also, so if you follow that case, you know that the coroner's office, uh, they listed his death as a homicide, right? But let, let's move on because um, I want to get back to today's verdict. 2014 also saw the death of Michael Brown, Michael Brown Jr., 18-year-old Ferguson, Missouri, killed by Darren Wilson, police officer there. Um, and once again, no charges were filed. No charges were filed. Despite the community's reaction, despite um, the protest, despite the fact that these things are not isolated. Uh, they are not anomalies. And when you continue to go through situations where you are denied justice, where you are denied an opportunity to see that uh, the system can also work on behalf of the citizen, uh, it, it, it can also, that can have a traumatic effect. It can have a very... Um, just a, a desensitizing and a just wither, uh, wither community's belief in that system. So it's a dangerous thing to continue to see, uh, to continue to see this this pattern, see this play out. And there are plenty of folks I can mention. Um, Stephen Clark, right? Um, Sacramento, two officers shot him uh, 20 times. They were on desk duty for a minute. They're back on duty. He did. He he was unarmed. Philando Castile. And uh, was that Minnesota? Shot and killed. And his uh, his girlfriend, she put puts on the camera and she starts recording. Um, and it said, you know, he he tells the guy. Philando tells the guy, yes, I have a I have a a firearm on me, and this officer has a meltdown, and and the result is. This man is dead. He's shot seven times. He's killed. And he's acquitted. He was charged. I think he was charged with uh, mans manslaughter. Second degree aggra uh, aggravated manslaughter. Something like that. But he's acquitted of all charges. Once again, no accountability. So today, with the... And, and you know, for those of you who, who are paying attention. For those of you who are to use... Uh, who are woke... Right. For those of you who have not who didn't just start paying attention, then you know that there's a long list of names that go along uh, that we can throw that we can just plug in there. You know, going back to uh, Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice. Um, there, there, there are a lot of names that we can plug into this uh, into this equation, unfortunately, and we still come up with the net net result of zero accountability. So today is a um, it is something it is something to take take hold of and look at it as a uh, as as a launch pad, right? To help us redirect ourselves as a city, uh, and and to really buy into and exemplify that no one is above the law. No one is above the law, whether you wear a uniform or not, whether you wear uh, 
you know, it doesn't matter what, whatever your neighborhood you're from, the color of your skin, what language you speak. None of those things matter. No one is above the law. No one is above justice. No one. And well, I should say everyone will be held accountable. Now, there's some folks who don't like that. And oddly enough, uh, those folks happen to be the folks who represent our police officers. So there was a statement released uh, by the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police and they are hot. They are very upset, very angry. So I'm going to read this statement to you. It says, this is a day I never thought I'd see in America where 12 ordinary citizens were duped into saving the asses of self-serving politicians at the expense of a dedicated public servant. This sham trial and shameful verdict is a message to every law enforcement officer in America that it's not the perpetrator in front of you that you need to worry about. It's the political operative stabbing you in the back. What cop would still want to be proactive fighting crime after this disgusting charade and our law and our law abiding citizens ready to pay the price? This is absolute nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. Now, I, I apologize if anyone was offended by, um, uh, by, by, by the wording there, but I wanted to read it as they, as they presented it. So let's go back really quickly. He says, this sham trial and shameful verdict is a message to every law enforcement officer in America and that it's not the perpetrator in front of you that you need to worry about. Let's stop right there for a moment. The perpetrator in front of you. Let's go back to those names. Let's go back to Eric Gardner, who was simply out. He was out hustling. They said they approached him because he was, you know, selling loose uh, cigarettes or whatever. The man didn't deserve to die. Didn't deserve to be put into a chokehold where he's gasping for his life 11 times saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. He didn't deserve. He didn't deserve to not be here for his family. Was he was he a perpetrator? What was he doing that deserved that type of type of response? Was Philando Castile simply driving and letting the officer know that I have I have on my person, I have a firearm. Was he a perpetrator? What was he doing that that made him worthy of that type of force? What did Tamir Rice do? A young, young, what, 12, 13 year old in Cleveland. Playing with a toy gun like any other uh, like like tons of other children, tons of, of little white boys playing with their friends with their little toy guns. What? How was he a perpetrator worthy of being shot down, being killed, taken away from his family? His future denied him. His community denied him. How is he a perpetrator? And what did Laquan McDonald do? What act did he perpetrate aside from walking erratically? holding a three-inch folded uh, knife, even if the blade is out, and he's already surrounded or he's already he's already been met by uh, a, a number of Chicago police officers who are already on the scene. And this Rambo, Jason Van Dyke, pulls up and within seconds fires off and shoots 16 shots into the body of Laquan McDonald. How was he a perpetrator? See, there's really something wrong with those. What's the old saying? The old saying is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. 
See, our system is such that those who have power, who have been given authority, that that, that authority, it has poisoned them because if there is no accountability that comes with that power, then that power is unchecked. And that power begins to see itself as absolute. So I say to the Illinois Fraternal, Fraternal Order of Police, your anger, your anger is shameful. You should be ashamed of yourself. Nobody is above the law. Nobody, not, not you, not anybody. So this is a, a great message. And I'm going to end with this. I know that um, everything is politicized, right? Everything. You can't get away with this. That's just the society we live in. And with Mayor Rahm Emanuel deciding that he's not going to run uh, for mayor, that we have a load. I think there's like 10 or 11 folks now that have already declared their candidacy uh, for mayor. Among them, a uh, brother of our former uh, mayor, uh, uh, Richard Daly, uh, Bill Daly. Who is chiming in he's calling this he says uh calls the verdict a new beginning for chicago and he's called for a recommitment to the safety of the city i don't have the time to go into his choice of words uh safety is not really the issue it's not the word that comes up uh in black and brown communities and communities of color when we're talking about how we interact with the police uh, it is accountability and justice and fairness it is not being stereotyped it is being it is not being over policed but if safety, if by safety you mean, am I safe to just get in the car and drive from my house to the store without fear uh, that a police run-in will will end with me being taken from my family? Then yeah, I guess we can talk about that as a matter of safety. So anyway, uh, that's something that those who have put their names in the hat, who've declared their candidacy, and those who decide that they're going to, this is something that you are going to have to take uh, a serious look at because as i said today can be uh, a new beginning uh, it can be uh, something that we can build upon uh, there is hope in this uh, and accountability is a good thing we do not need racist trigger happy uh, sociopaths walking around uh, with firearms and badges we just don't need that Right. Uh, everybody loses with that. So we want to be able to support our law enforcement officers, our first responders, and we want to support them in a responsible manner. And we want them to support the communities that they serve. So uh, that being said, we're going to shut this down now. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, and we thank our engineers over at WCEV for making sure we come through loud and clear. Thank our engineer in studio, the impressive one, Ibrahim Beg. Um, he and I are your producers for today. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and or guests are theirs and not to be taken as a representation of Sound Vision Foundation. And with that, good people, we leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.